growth will slow down. It is an S curve. It's not exponential because your market saturates, right? right? And you can't keep growing anymore because there's no more people, no more people with access to internet, for example, no more people with phones. And by that time, if you can't flick the switch to actually make money, you have a problem. But till then, spend the money on growth. Don't be afraid of spending it. That's just part of the business. Welcome to another episode of People Building Businesses. My name is Jason Lim. It's great to have you tuning in today. This podcast is produced by YBF Ventures. YBF's mission is to help startups to scale, scale ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. We do all of that in our spaces in Melbourne and Sydney. And if you want to find out more, visit ybfventures.com. Uh, we're doing something a little different today, and we're recording this podcast out of our office in YBF Sydney. We usually do it out of uh, Melbourne. Our guest today is quite special, uh, Nexel CEO and founder, Philip Turner, who incidentally is a YBF Sydney member and part of the Landon Rogers Law Tech Hub as well. Uh, Philip is a leader in the legal technology space, and his company Nexel is a LinkedIn-style platform for lawyers. He's described his company as the Match.com for international referral relationships. We'll dig more into that later on. Uh, he's also made quite an impact on the legal industry in Australia. Uh, Philip apparently doesn't like this, but the Australian Financial Review has even called him a leading technology guru and tech whiz. It's big praise from one of the biggest and most uh, renowned publications here in Australia. As always, we've got lots to talk about. Philip, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, great to be here. Uh, so right before we started filming, uh, we, we talked about where you came from and you said that you yeah. were initially from Austria and you moved here for a, a very specific reason. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Could you just share a bit more yeah, about sure. that? Yeah. Um, I'm originally Austrian. Um, yeah. I grew up in a very small town actually in the middle of the mountains. Um, have you seen the sound of music? Uh, I have, yeah. Exactly there. Oh, so beautiful. I'm from a little bit down south from Salzburg, grew up in the mountains where at the beginning where she sings and how beautiful it is. Um, this is how I grew up, very small mountain town. Um, had the opportunity to leave and I grabbed that opportunity and I moved to Australia. And that was because of my ex-girlfriend back then. Didn't work out, um, but still got my visa from it. Yep. And also I'm married again. You're not married so, as well. Which awesome. is awesome, another Australian. So <laughs> got stuck here. Yeah, for, for sure. And, and doing great things as well, apparently. So yeah. uh, how'd you get into tech coming from a, a place like that? Yeah, um, I actually started very, very early um, because my father founded an IT business in 85. Um, I was born in 87. Okay. So, yeah, was still young when I was born, but I had my first computer when I was three years old. So I grew up with tech. Tech was the only thing I knew and have ever known. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> So, so any so entrepreneurs tend to have these like crazy stories where you know when they were young they used to pull apart computers or built their first game. Did oh. you have something like that when you were younger? Yeah, pull games. Um, I actually, <laughs> I'm I'm a full nerd. Um, I was a very big Lord of the Rings fan um, back in the days, and always wanted to go to New Zealand, which I still haven't done. But um, <laughs> I actually built a Lord of the Rings board game in Excel using VBA. <laughs> Very nerdy. Which was super nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> super, super nerdy. Super nerdy thing. And, and yeah. <laughs> what, what happened to the game? Is it, can we still get it? Can we still download it? Oh, no. It was just within a spreadsheet, yeah. right? Um, and yeah, instead of doing just simple calculations what we were meant to do at school, um, okay. I built that and played that with my friends, which was fun. Okay, <laughs> awesome. So, so your, your dad, you said he started a, a company mm-hmm. when in 85, yeah. uh, you were born in 87. Yeah. Um, did he have a big influence on the way you approached your career growing up as well? Yes, definitely. Um, because where I'm from, it's, there's, not, there's no big enterprises, right? There's all just small businesses. It's just the mom and dad shops basically, right? Um, and everyone kind of does what their father does and mm. steps into their footsteps, I guess. And my father was great in the way that he always said that the business and the company he's created is an opportunity for us. I have a brother as well, but he would never push it onto us. So it was a, a choice if we want to build our own thing or take over his thing. And both of us chose to build our own things, so he sold the business. Okay. Yeah. Oh, awesome. So the entrepreneur genes sort of run in your family. 
you can say that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you've had, just really quickly covering your education, you, you studied yeah. engineering and IT at yeah. the University of Salzburg, but you also did um, a course in innovation and entrepreneurship at the Stanford Graduate School of yes. Business. Yeah. Uh, what was your experience going through those two very different kind of yeah. academic environments? Um, yeah, very different. Um, with the Stanford thing, um, the main reason why I did it was credibility, um, mm -hmm. because that was around the time when I was looking into leaving my first or big job or big career here at Gilbert and Tobin mm. and to start my own kind of consulting business. And because of that, I was like, okay, I want to do innovation consulting. What's the thing what I need to impress? And what I did was the innovation entrepreneurship certificate um, at Stanford. Okay. And it taught me the language I needed and also quite a fair bit around, um, you know, how to run the business, just simple from business modeling, from leading innovation and just being you know, entrepreneurial, I guess, sure. and keeping up the entrepreneurial mindset. Do, do you find that it was worth it? Because sometimes entrepreneurs say, you know, oh, you got to drop out, you know, or education is not worth anything anymore. And you hear um, all these like traditional like tropes, I guess. Look, I think it's worth it in some different ways. I learned a few things that were new, but because I was so interested in that topic already, I read so many books. So most of that stuff I already knew, but it still gave me kind of, the confirmation in the way that, okay, if Stanford teaches it that way, then I'm doing it the right way yeah, kind sure. of thing. It's just like this kind of confirmation that, all right, I'm on the right track. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a lot of listeners are people who are aspiring to build businesses or, mm -hmm. or who are currently entrepreneurs. And if, if they came to you for advice on whether or not they should be doing something like that in their lives, whether it be, you know, something in Stanford, mm -hmm. a postgraduate thing or an MBA, yeah. do you have any advice for them given that you've done it yourself? Um, well, it, I think it always depends on the person. It yeah. really depends on them, um, on their previous experience and, and all of that and what they want to do at the end of the day. Um, I think education is a very important part of it. Hmm. Um, knowledge is something no one can take away from you. Sure. Um, and it's a huge asset. And the person who knows more will always win. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's good so, advice for all the listeners yeah. out there. So, so do it. Yeah, do it. Awesome. Do it. So touching on your career at... Uh, Gilbert and Tobin, mm -hmm. because a, a lot's been written about your time there yeah. in, in the news. Uh, again, the AFR, the headline for the AFR was that Gilbert and Tobin forced to share tech whiz who wants to transform legal world. So yeah. you, you left Gilbert, Gilbert and Tobin uh, having that big mark on the firm, but yeah. you actually started out as a, a desktop support administrator. Yeah, um, yeah, service you, desk. Yeah, you, you've climbed, picking up the phones. Yeah, so you, you literally climbed the ranks of, yeah. of the company. Yes. Could you just encapsulate your story for us sure. about your time in yeah. Gilbert and Tobin? Sure. Um, so when I moved over here to Australia eight years ago, um, it was quite difficult for me to find my first job. Um, my only big reference, what I had back in IT, was my father, right, in a very small town who doesn't speak English very well. So that reference didn't really count. So it was quite difficult to find a a job um, and I also had this dream um, when I was little to always like to work in a high-rise building so there was just two things first of all it was quite difficult um, to get a job so I had to start completely low level so and also at the same time I wanted to work in a high-rise building so I had to find a very low entry level job in a really cool office and what I found was Gilbert and Tobin. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very specific requirement. There was a very specific requirement. Um, there was back in Two Park Street. Yeah. Um, my office was on the 37th floor, which was like, wow. When I walked in, I was like, I can't wait to show this to my parents um, yeah. where I work, right? And that's how I started. Service desk. Completely um, overqualified for the role, but that was probably also one of the advantages that I had because, because I was overqualified and I'm quite proactive um, with my work. And service desk is very reactive in a way. If the phone rings, you have a job. If it doesn't ring, there's nothing to do. And instead of me just waiting for the phone to ring, I started to innovate. And I had this plan of automating my own role and making myself redundant to move up the career ladder, basically. Because if I knew that if they do not have to replace me, it's easier to move on. So I just made myself redundant over and over again. Interesting. And are, are you able yeah. to share how you innovated in that role? Yeah. Um, so my first innovation, what I came up with there was I looked into our ticketing system and looked up about the top 20, 25 um, IT issues we had. And I fully automated the kind of repair process of it. So I created a little tool, which is still 
installed on everyone's computer Gilberton Turbine, which is wow. awesome. Um, and it has solved, I think, over 150,000 service test tickets. And what it does, basically, you just double-click it. It scans your computer for these issues what the lawyers had and automatically fixed it. That's a That's it. simple fix, but... Simple thing, but very... Effective. Effective, yeah, yeah. Because like a lot of people, when they look into innovation, they think about how about how can we make it more efficient for the lawyers and they're just looking at the legal process itself. But if you think about the average service desk call was about five minutes and we have removed 150,000 of these. That's so much That's time a lot of hours. which people can use to actually bill. Yeah, <laughs> and I think the AFR and even yeah. had a figure on it. It was like about 55% of time that you've saved uh, internally within within the firm because of your tool? There's there's a couple of different tools in, in different areas. So that specific one within um, the AFR was a kind of a, a different tool which was more like lawyer time okay. um, to automate and that was for prospectus verification for right. um, IPOs. Okay. So that was a very manual process back then. Was, was the firm initially receptive to you building all these products? Because it... I'm guessing yeah. it just came out of nowhere, you know, service desk person building all these tools, trying to say, hey, you know, yeah. it's going to save the firm a lot of time, you know? <laughs> like, um, look, as long as I was in IT operation, it was not a problem, right? Everyone loved it. Um, it made it so much easier. Um, and that was kind of before legal innovation actually was a thing. So that term was thrown around a little bit, but no one really did anything about it. Um, and once Sam Nicholas, um, the current COO and partner of Gilbert and Tobin, joined, he was the first to say, okay, let's create an innovation team and make innovation one of the biggest things within Gilbert and Tobin. And they were thinking, it's like, okay, let's create a team. Who are we going to put into that team? And luckily, I was there at the right time. I started automating all the IT back office tasks. So they thought maybe he can do that same thing for lawyers as well. Okay. So I was the one man innovation team right at the beginning when it started out. And this all happened within the span of just five years, I think. Yeah, I was at the service desk for two years Jeez, because yeah. my manager back then, uh, love him, um, Steve Thornton, he um, had this rule where he said, you have to stay two years at the service desk before you can move on. And since then, he has actually pushed that through. And with everyone who came past me, he could always point at me and say, even PT had to be at the service desk for two years and then everyone kind of accepted it. <laughs> That's incredible. So you started to become the role model for, yeah. for what success looks like within, yeah. within that team. Yeah. But being at the service desk for two years, that was, that was tough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you slogged it out in the end and, and yeah, you made it. it worked so, out well. What advice do you have for someone who's trying to do something similar in, in their careers? Do you think you're an outlier or do you think everyone can do something like that? No, I think at the end of the day, everyone can do something like that. Um, I think the most important thing what I did is I always said yes to everything. Um, even if I didn't know how to do it, hmm. I just said yes because I knew I can just learn it quickly and then do it. Um, especially within a corporate world where the timelines, are, like you have a little bit more time to actually learn it before you actually have to deliver it into deadlines are a little bit further out. Startup world, it's a little tough. But um, I think with corporate world, just say yes to everything. Yeah, you can sure. do it and then just learn it and then do it and impress. Yep. Work hard. <laughs> Work hard. Exactly. <laughs> Work <yeah>. hard. <laughs> so, so you eventually led the innovation team uh, yeah. within Gilbert and Tobin. Well, I was not leading it. Yeah. No, I was just part of it. And part of it, kind yeah. Of, yeah. Just known for your, your ability to innovate and, and yeah, build new I was, products. Yeah, I was basically doing all the tech stuff. Sure. It. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's this dichotomy of, of people uh, you know, trying to push external innovation versus mm -hmm. internal innovation. Mm -hmm. And there's this tension that people are trying to figure out, you know, is, is internal innovation better? Should we in-house our, our tech capabilities or outsource it somewhere else? Having been a part of that within yeah. your own, within Gilbert yeah. and Tobin, yeah. what, what are your views on that? Um, well, there's always kind of the first thing what you have to look into, I guess, is build versus buy. That's the yeah. first kind of decision. And then when you build it, are you going to build it yourself or are you going to outsource it? Um, <laughs> everything's difficult yeah. <laughs> there's no right answer but there's no right answer no definitely not um the, the thing is what most kind of law firms or also other enterprises do is they're too fixated on their perfect solution and because of that it makes it very difficult to buy anything because the perfect solution does not exist 
And it's sometimes easier to change your internal processes slightly to then adopt to the tool you're actually going to buy mm-hmm. than the other way around. But people are too much focused on actually customizing tools to fit their processes. A little bit of shift around that will be pretty good and that makes it much, much easier. And then you don't actually have to build internally because yep. most of the tools are available. And then just take it on what they've been built for and use it for that and just change your processes slightly around that. Okay. Makes it so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, sounds yeah. like it. <laughs> <laughs> but trust me, no one does it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so at what point did you kind of go, um, you know, your time's up in, in that company and it, it was time to venture yeah. on your own? What was this? What was the light bulb moment for um, you? Um, I think the moment was when we won most, okay, there was this Financial Times as yearly innovative lawyer awards and Gilbert and Tobin at that one year won everything that was to win and Danny Gilbert, I think, walked home with five awards. Um, the other kind of good firm had two awards and then it's just some of them had one single award, right? So Gilbert and Tobin really was at the forefront in innovation and won everything. And at that time I thought, okay, that's probably a very good time for me to just jump ship and start something out of that, okay. out of that momentum. So you just saw the success that the firm was in, you kind of went, okay, my time's up. And Look, yeah, I was associated with innovation at Gilbert and Tobin and in Gilbert and Tobin won all the most innovative firms kind of awards. Um, yeah. And there wasn't too much further up you could go from the reputation um, than that. So I thought, okay, let's start something yourself. Right. So what was the, it's not common that news outlets write about someone when they're leaving a firm. Yeah. What happened there? What? I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't so know. It just I'm... Was out of, you just woke up one day and there was this article about you in, in the no, paper. So um, we actually did talk to someone about it and pitched it in a way that, you know, I joined a startup back then as well, plus also started my own consulting business. Mm. Kind of, I had a lot going on and wanted kind of to promote for this smaller startup that they have hired someone from a big law kind of, you know, tech role and innovation sure. role. And yeah, it turned out completely differently. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they're going to include it just in a, as a one-liner somewhere that, you know, this is going to happen. But then it was this huge thing. And at the beginning when I read it, I freaked out because I did not, like it sounded not good towards Gilbert Tobin though I have a very good relationship still with them and I love them, right? And I do a lot for them still and we work and collaborate together. Um, Danny Gilbert is one of our investors even, right? And I was just looking at the article and I was like, Gilbert and Tobin forced to share tech with. And I was like, oh no. Not, not very <laughs> flattering to them. <laughs> no, so I had to just do a couple of calls. And But everyone understands that mm. with media, you don't have control on what's actually published and printed. And this obviously reads much, much better than Philip Turner from IT left Gilbert and Tobin. No one cares about that. Yep. It was just more so, okay, there's always just this good stuff happening at Gilbert and Tobin and these amazing things. There's one thing where they can just take a little bit of a backstab at it slightly. Yeah. Media grabbed it and did it. That's, that's how media <laughs> runs, right? <laughs> so you never know. So be careful. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of lessons stuff, here to learn. Stuff, <laughs> stuff can backfire. <laughs> so so when you when you left uh, Gilbert and Jobin, mm-hmm. you, you said you started a consulting firm and you also joined a, a startup. Yeah. Um, and that startup was Law Advisor and you were the head of product yeah. for a while. Yeah. Could, could you just run us through that that period of time before you started Nexel? Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so that was quite a busy time. Um, juggling kind of the consulting um, plus also working as head of product um, with Brennan um, at Law Advisor. Um, I've learned, or this was kind of my first step into the startup world a little bit more at Law Advisor, and I've learned quite a fair bit. Um, and after working pretty hard and for about six, seven months, I thought I should be able to do my own thing. Mm. Um, and I wanted, I always wanted to, and I was kind of had the experience and saw and how it actually works and I figured ah, it can't be that hard it doesn't look too hard let's do it yourself um, but yeah I learned a lot there um, during kind of the time as a head of product on product development how to manage the teams on um, dev teams how to you know do your user research and all of that um, but at the same time also what I've learned was doing the consulting 
yep. was great for me because I had a very narrow view at the beginning of the legal world, which was Gilbert and Tobin only, right? And it is a national firm in a smaller market, which is Australia. And so I did more consulting for bigger firms, international ones as well, plus overseas to learn the ins and outs um, of the legal industry. Plus also I did some consulting for in-house legal teams. Um, one of them was Woolies. Um, and because I wanted to understand the entire kind of buyer journey as well, like the entire value chain from the buyers of the legal services to the ones um, who then deliver the legal services as well to kind of get a better overview of everything. So okay. I don't miss anything when I kind of come up with some ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how do you find these people, all, all these new clients? It sounds like a dream for anyone who's starting a consulting firm to, to have all these multinational firms approach you and even yeah. from different industries. Yeah. Um, I did not find them. They found me. <laughs> was it through the article or something else or referrals? Um, the or? article helped a little bit, but then it was just word of mouth, basically, and introductions. Um, okay. The article definitely got me a good gig um, um, at PW PWC. Um, so there were some law firm partners who have left Gilbert and Tobin and who I worked with and did some innovation projects with who joined PwC. And as soon as they read that I had left, they obviously tried like straight away a week after I had a phone call and oh. come and help us, please. Okay. And so I did. And when did the idea for Nexel first take hold of you? Was it when you were consulting to these firms? No. Um, I had this idea actually while I was at Gilbert and Tobin. Okay. Um, so Gilbert and Tobin once asked me to automate one of their spreadsheets, what they had, which was a list of contacts they use um, for international matters. And that was part of their trademark team. Mm. Um, so any international trademark um, matters, they sent to their kind of best friend firms they had all around the world. And they managed that through a simple spreadsheet. And they asked me to automatically or write a script to automatically email all of their partners yearly <laughs> to get updated contact details and their updated rate cards, basically. And because I do not like automating a process which is broken, I said no. <laughs> okay. Because the entire process was broken. Right. Um, because if you just think about it, if Gilbert and Tobin has 80 law firms or 90 law firms, however many it was, and send 90 emails out to ask for updated details. Gilbert and Tommy probably then is part of other networks and they would then receive 90 to 100 emails and then everyone else receives 90, 100 emails. That's just, that was just insane. A lot I could of not, emails. Yes, there was just so many emails and I was like, okay, there's something completely seriously broken with that kind of way on how to manage it. And that was the first time when I thought about, okay, a network is needed here. Right. And that's how it kind of the idea started with Nexel. Okay. And w when do you actually start working on Nexel? You've had this idea brewing in the background and did you start working on it like incrementally or? So we wanted to kind of test the idea back at Gilbert and Tobin still and just reach out to a few people and ask, is this something what people are interested in? Um, did not get any traction with it whatsoever. Sure. And then I left. Um, it was exactly that time when I was leaving. So nothing happened with it. Um, afterwards, I did, did the consulting and also worked for Law Advisor, and I met someone um, at a legal tech event, and they were like, hey, let's do something. And okay, we were just working and just bouncing ideas, and I was like, oh, actually, I remember an idea what I had, which I really want to do. And that was basically Nexel. And before, it was, when was that? In 2018. And I then just created a quick pitch deck, basically, with that idea floated it with a few investors basically to just ask for feedback what they think and what would be needed one um, investor gave me feedback and like okay the only thing what he wants to see is a prototype a working one and a slide full of logos of law firms who would buy it and i was like okay challenge accepted right <laughs> that was just before i went on a big holiday to europe <laughs> so i spent most of my holiday building the prototype and signing up our first clients in london Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah. Congratulations. That's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> How did you find these investors? Were they from your time working in corporates and consulting? Um, or? Yeah, just for the network, basically, just from people I knew. What, what I've learned, or one, a really cool thing is lawyers know everybody. Right. Which is great, right? So if you have a big network of lawyers, you can go into anywhere through them, which is amazing. And um, that's how I did it, through my lawyer network. 
some M&A lawyers who then just um, introduced me to some VCs and yep. amazing. Yeah, got some feedback to that. And, and, and yeah. for the listeners on the podcast, uh, could you encapsulate quickly what Nexel does today? Yeah. Um, what does the product look like? Yeah, cool. Um, so the product is quite versatile in a way, but as you said, it's kind of this LinkedIn style system for lawyers where lawyers can create their own profiles and then start connecting and building global relationships with these so-called best friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can build their own best friends network for international advice. So as you know, lawyers are not allowed to give advice outside of their jurisdiction where they're registered in. Mm-hmm. So whenever a client asks for international advice, they're not even allowed to give that advice. So they have to refer them on to one of their best friends. And we have a solution to make that easier. Um, so not all of that work has to go to the big international firms where who are a little bit more expensive. Um, where it's just more smaller boutique firms who have a strong network and we allow them to build that network and then manage that work internationally. Yeah. So it sounds like the product is quite close to what you were envisioning when you were still in Gilbert yeah. and Tobin. Very close now. Yeah. We're nearly kind of, we're just releasing our next or our last two core features. Um, and then we have about 90%, but only just the MVP of these 90% sure. of the different features, um, what I envisioned from day one, yeah. Yeah. So... Jumping back to the start next level again, yeah. you, you raised about $820,000 in yeah. seed funding. And yeah. was this when you were shopping the uh, pitch deck around and you had investors interested? Or no, was this at, at a was later a, stage? No, that was a different story. Okay. Um, so the way, so I built the prototype with probably doing about 16 hours of coding for four weeks straight. Lots <laughs> <laughs> of Red Bull and coffee around you. Lots of Red Bull. Um, lucky I was in Austria, the country of Red Bull. Yep. Um, so... And I've built that so I had a prototype ready. And what really pushed me to get the prototype ready within the four weeks was I used one of my lawyer connections um, to say, hey, I'm in Europe. I have a prototype, which I didn't. And I want to demo this to law firms in London. Can you intro me? Um, Got an intro and set up a meeting. So I had a demo booked for a law firm in London and I did not have a product. So you had a hard deadline. You needed I had a hard deadline. I, I did. Yeah. So that's why I did that. And the funny part was I never even was able to test the entire thing um, when I pushed it onto the server. <laughs> gotcha. Um, because I pushed it at 7.30 and at 9.30 a.m. was my meeting. <laughs> but it worked. <laughs> wow. And we won the client. That's so, nerve-wracking. Yeah, okay. Which was awesome. Amazing. So first pitch went okay. Um, yeah. And then I used, obviously, their logo to get the next person, the next person, the next person, the next person. And once I was back in Australia, <clears throat> I then had, I was kind of lucky in the position that I pitched to law firm partners and law firm partners are great angel investors at the same time as well. Um, Top tier firm, law firm partners, I think it was in the AFR not that long ago, had an average income of 1.1 million a year, right? It's a lot of disposable income. Exactly. There's a little bit where you can say, okay, $25,000, $50,000 to just give it a go um, for something where they can help grow it and use it was perfect. So while I sold the product um, to get into law firms, at the same time also pitched for an investment. Okay. And what was interesting about your group of angel investors was that, like you said, a few of them were actually the founders of Gilbert and Tobin and you had investors from Holland Wilcox and other top tier firms as well. Um, so... How do you find interacting with these angel investors? What kind of relationship do you have with your investors? Um, A loose one. (laughs) Um, Look, close enough, I guess. Um, The good part on having angel investors on board as well that it's not like VC money where you have to create all of your monthly kind of updates where it's very hard on the deadlines and the KPIs. It's more so kind of a supportive role from them where everyone kind of advises me and Mm -hmm. helps, um, but doesn't look over my shoulder too much um, because I just trust that I do what I do. Um, So the relationships are really good. I have lunches with them every now and then, right? Um, But because I got so many of them right at the beginning, which was, I think we have 10, um, it would be too much to go too deep in all the different relationships, just too much of my time. So it's quite a an open kind of thing. And how do you distill the advice when people give you conflicting advice? Yeah. Because sometimes I'm, I'm guessing you hear different things Happens from people. A lot. And like as, as a yeah. founder and as a CEO, how do you decide what, what's best to take um, on board? 
I usually always try to, like I listen to all of the advice what I get and if it's conflicting advice, I just listen to myself and what I believe and that's the one I'm going to go with. Yeah. Um, is one of the two pieces is closer to mine, I'll pick that one. Hmm. Is it the right one or the wrong one? Yep. Who knows? <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, try like, it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a conviction of yourself as a founder and, and that you know what's best for your business. Is that right? Well, or? in a way, yes, but it's also just... For the business itself, 100%, because I know the most about it. Um, I've been focusing on it 24-7 for the last, you know, how long? Um, and, But it's more so, I think, the way that I have my own opinion, but I'm very, very open for someone to change my opinions. And I like to do the research on that. So if someone gives me their opinion, I take that up, and if it convinces me quite easily, then I'm like, okay, I go with it. Yeah. Um, if it's conflicting also with myself, then mm, then I have to do a little bit more research into it. Yeah. But then if the research then also points into that direction, then I have to just be like, okay, I'm wrong. Let's well, move on. <laughs> what's interesting about Nexel, I, I find, is that usually you have different co-founders to bounce off these opinions yeah. and ideas yeah. with, whereas you're a solo founder. Yeah. Like, what's solo founder life like? You don't see many of you. Lonely. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, it's it's sometimes a little bit tricky, um, but I do bounce my like the ideas with the team. Um, I have a very strong team, and that's what I'm really proud of. I've built a very cool team, and I bounce my ideas with them, and I trust them. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of motivate each other and push each other to kind of the next levels. And if there's something no one really knows and has experience in, um, I have a good group of advisors I ask. Yeah, absolutely. But it's always a little bit slower. So if you only f- like can rely on an advisory board, that feedback loop is too slow. It's quite difficult to you know get them um, have to chat or whatever. If you need to lock in a lunch, it might right. take two weeks, right? And in a startup, two weeks is just too long for a feedback cycle. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. You have to make the decision now. I mean, a, a lot of investors, a lot of venture funds out there. Tr- try to only invest in companies with two founders. Yeah. I, I know it's a rule for some of the funds here, but y- you've taken the opposite approach and you've backed yourself as a, as a solo founder. I mean, for anyone starting a business, like what, what kind of advice would you give to them to choose the route of either finding a co-founder or starting it themselves? Um, look, at the end of the day, they can start it themselves and just find people very early. Um, if we would have to bootstrap it for a long time and you don't hire anyone, that's what I see as a problem. Um, especially there's no accountability in there either. Um, and there's a lot of solo founders out there where I know where it's not really a startup, but more so a project. Um, and it comes more like a hobby mm-hmm. and no one is really actually taking the next steps to really commit first off with financially plus then hiring someone where you then make a commitment to them to help them in their career and actually pay their salary in a way, right? Um, that is scary, it's a big but that pushes you. Yeah. And I think that was something what I did really early. Yeah. The first 25,000 when I had in the bank, I hired two full-time people. Two full-time people, 25,000? Yeah. How did you manage that? Yeah, it was stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Trust okay. me. But that, again, I knew is going to push me to yeah. find the money again to make the next payroll and the next payroll and the next payroll. And I always did. Yeah. Does the pressure ever so, get to you? No. Oh, sometimes. <laughs> Not too much, though. Um I'm really easygoing. I think that was I'm really lucky growing up in that small town. Um, great family. Um, what I've just taught me don't don't take things too seriously. Mm. Um, it's all good. It's gonna work out. You make it work. Mm. And because of that, I don't stress too much. But sometimes it's just I've taken it very very far okay. with pushing the limits in the way that making payroll, for example, when you're all the way drowned. Uh, drawn down to $300 in the bank account and you know in one week time or two weeks time you have payroll coming up and it's $25,000 it's like okay where do I get $25,000 in two weeks Um, that's stressful and especially because if I wouldn't be able to make it I would feel that I have let down my team and they have made the commitment and trust me right and they have families right so I was like okay I have to make it work and there was one situation where it was so close so 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 close but I yeah, made it. <laughs> I mean, how, in that situation, how do you make the call to keep going or to... You no, know? you always keep going. There's no other choice. It's you just choice. keep going. Yeah. The question is just how do you keep going? Hmm. 
And that's what you have to do, make the decision. Yeah, that's incredible. And I, I mean, you've, you've been very public about your support for the team as well and the fact yeah. that you've hired a, a great team. Yeah. How do you choose people to join your team? Is it a yeah. matter of culture or skill or what other things do you look for? Both. Um, so there's a, there's a few things. So firstly, I usually have a chat and it's all around culture, especially if you're so early on. If culture doesn't fit, if, that, if you don't get along with that person, how are you going to sit next to them for that long if you're just three people, for example, or four, right? Mm. Culture is going to be one of the most important parts right at the beginning and skill is not as important. Um, although if you get both, perfect, right? But you don't always find that. Um, I look at culture first, then obviously skill as well. But I have kind of this thing in my head when I speak to them and we talk about, you know, just having an interview or a chat. I don't really like to call them interviews. I usually just have chats with people. Sounds really formal. And coffees. Yeah, exactly. And I don't like that. And it's questioning and then answer and then question and answer. No, it should just be a conversation. It's just flow. And during that conversation, same as we do right now, get the information out, what you need. Mm. Um, but I picture myself and say, can I sit next to this person or can I imagine my person uh, being with that person on a late night doing an all-nighter, order some pizza, some Red Bulls and being able to kind of, you know, burn it through and do that for a week or two? Can I imagine myself doing that with that person? And if yes, and if I know that this person would do it with me, that's it. Yeah, that's I awesome. say, get it. And, and, <laughs> and then I'm really quick and I'm just like, okay, do you want it? Yes. On the spot. Right. So no, no two-week deliberation no. or whatever it is. I hired our head of growth without even meeting him in oh, person. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So was it video interviews or calls? Or? Um, so we met while I was doing consulting and he kind of started his career or had started his career in, in legal tech marketing and just wanted to learn a little bit more about the innovation scene here in Australia. So he reached out on LinkedIn and we started just talking every month or two on the weekend just for an hour just to share some innovation ideas. And one day when I told him about Nexo, he was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Next time we spoke, like, come on, quit your job and join. And he did. Wow. <laughs> That's a big vote of confidence that someone has in you to, yeah. to leave the job just like that. Yeah, which was cool. <laughs> well, I mean, it speaks, it, it speaks to the culture and uh, the example you set from, for your team. Yeah. And, you know, culture is always set by the founder or the CEO. How do you motivate your team and how do you set that example or culture within your team? Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Is it natural to you? I no, we, we look, it's not always perfect. Um, it's not everything I say is is great in that sense. Um, we struggle sometimes. We had a little bit of low um, end of last year where everything just slowed down a little bit and I could tell it's not that great. People were a little bit quiet, collaboration wasn't really happening. Um, we're just trying to be open. We, everyone knows that we're all just trying to figure it out still. Um, there's not me being like, hey, this is our values and we have to live by that. It's okay. more so let's just get by and grow and make it a fun kind of environment to work at, give our best and that's it. And if something is wrong, be open and honest about it and we can sort everything out. So are you 100% transparent with your team as yeah. well? So, yeah. sort of that radical transparency kind of approach sometimes too radical transparent i think um but it's very so there's so much information um and i try to share as much as i can but if i would just share everything all the time i would only be sharing information and not actually being working <laughs> true right so there's definitely some parts where people don't really know too much about um but i try as much as i can to share it okay and um as of December 2019, yeah. uh, Nexel had 552 user accounts in 60 countries. Thanks, uh, Joe, for finding that stat out. Yeah. <laughs> What's behind the growth strategy for Nexel? What is your approach to growth? Okay. Um, we have a very product-led growth strategy. Um, but even if you have a product-led growth strategy, you have to get a few people in at the beginning um, to get this flywheel kind of going. And what we have found was email cold email outreach was the best for us so far which works really well so this is what kind of got that flywheel going I, I actually had this conversation not that long ago and I actually thought how did I even sell this to say hey we're building a network and then the person asks so who is on the network like well if you say yes you <laughs> <laughs> like how do you sell a, a network of one person right, right? I, could, kind of I know it's like this huge problem um, but we made it work and um, 
Now we have 1,000, close to 1,300 law firms wow. in 92 countries, um, part of um, Nexo. And it's, we are adding about 90 to 100 law firms a week now. That's incredible. Yeah, so, so it's really the flywheel is now going. Um, yeah. We started with cold email, um, got individual lawyers in through that, which works really well. We did a little bit of paid acquisition now as well through LinkedIn. Um, that works, but lawyers are not the most active on LinkedIn. Um, especially not a huge, like not a, a, a big amount of them. Um, they don't log in every single day. And for ads to work, you need a lot of impressions to see or even the frequency. Someone needs to see your ad probably nine times before they actually click on it. And getting or hitting that with a lawyer is quite hard if they're not online constantly. Um, that's working, but it's expensive. Right. <laughs> it just costs a little bit and yeah. it's a little bit slower. Um, email is still the strongest what we're doing. And obviously now on the same side is the invites, what I actually send through the platform right. from other lawyers, inviting other lawyers. How That's do you manage thing. the customer acquisition and onboarding process yeah. when they're all over the world and your team is here in Australia? We try to automate as good as possible. Is it perfect right now? No. Yep. <laughs> There's still a lot of work to do. Um, it's good enough to bringing them in right now and kind of selling the value and getting them to the aha moment. Um, automated. We use a lot of tools you know, in-app demos, like tours, and we have this little checklist that comes up. We have pop-ups everywhere, and we're trying to automate it as good as possible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's still not perfect, and there's a lot of work. Sure. <laughs> uh, so you're, you mentioned being a product-driven growth strategy. Yeah. Uh, we spoke a while ago to Dominic Pim, the CEO of and founder of UpBanking, and, mm -hmm. and his company has what he calls a the product tree or something like that. I can't exactly remember what term it was, but yeah. he's basically mapped out his entire product roadmap. Mm -hmm. um, the tree of up, I think that was the, the name of it. Yeah. yeah and it, so it, it basically maps out every single part of his product, including the parts of the product that he wants to build in the future. And he's yeah. published that, you know, uh, publicly for everyone to see. Uh, cool. what, what is your approach to building cool. product as well? Yeah. Okay. Our approach is a little bit less like that. Um, I have, Always, I always keep like this huge list of kind of a backlog what I've created very early on and I groom and update that with just the ideas and, and different things. But because it changes so quickly, even planning ahead for two to three months is very difficult um, because we learn so many new things that, okay, by the time we made the decision to do prioritization, um, we did not know certain things. And then a month later, we knew this. It's like, okay, now we have to actually reprioritize and actually build something slightly differently or change our approach on how we do things. So we don't, like I have a huge backlog, which will still work for probably another year's worth of work. Yeah. <laughs> but we plan probably about two to three weeks ahead. That's about it. Okay. Um, because it changes so quickly. Wow. And you mentioned before uh, we started podcast that like growth is expensive. Yeah, growth is expensive. <laughs> Why is it expensive <laughs> in your world at least? Look, at the end of the day, it, this is the only thing that I think people need to realize that growth costs money. Um, and if you want to grow, you have to spend it. You don't have to be scared of spending it. Um, there was actually a really a little bit off topic, but a, a good study out there where they looked into different founders and successful founders and on their upbringing, if they were middle class, lower middle class, or if they grew up in more wealthy kind of families. And they found that wealthier founders were more successful, but that was not because of the access of funds, which you would think, but it was more like um, their understanding of bigger numbers and not being scared of spending. Meaning $50,000 sounds like a lot of money. Right. to someone who has never had money. But $50,000 for growth is nothing. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. and you have to learn to kind of realize and, and work with these numbers with such higher numbers and also with the spend um, that sometimes if you're not used to that, it's a little bit too scary. So you say no, and that's against growth. Mm. Um, growth in general, why is it expensive? You need, first of all, if you want to grow your business, you need people. Um, people are expensive. Then... If you want to reach through paid acquisition, that's extremely expensive, especially if you go really broad and global. Um, that costs a lot. I spoke to someone um, recently as well who spoke about budgets and, and ad spend of like companies like an Uber and Ola or whoever, and they spend like, you know, 
$500,000 on one channel paid acquisition a month. Wow. You know, like... Yeah. When you, when you multiply expensive. it by hundreds of thousands yeah. of customers. Yeah. This is expensive. Um, and this is, I think, why this, this culture kind of growth culture came out of um, the States where you just keep raising money and keep raising money and raising money. You're actually losing money because growth is that expensive. And sometimes you just have to be a little bit inefficient with the spending as well sometimes for growth to happen. And then once you have a certain size, you have to be able to flick the switch to then actually do make money because otherwise growth will slow down. It is an S-curve. It's not exponential because your market saturates, right? right? And you can't keep growing anymore because there's no more people. More, no more people with access to internet, for example. No more people with phones. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that time, if you can't flick the switch to actually make money, you have a problem. But till then, spend the money on growth. Yeah. It's, don't be afraid of spending it. Um, that's that's just part of the business. you got to really, spend it. Yeah, that's really interesting advice. And I mean, the, the study about it's founders... It's weird. Everyone says, stay lean, lean, lean. Yes, stay lean at the beginning as good as you can. I probably made a little bit of mistake. I went a little bit too big too quickly um, before finding proper product market fit, which made it very stressful and got us, yeah, we had to push each other quite a fair bit um, to now reach it and actually get the money in. And we're still not fully out of that. Um, There's still a lot of pushing. But once you feel like, hey, this is going somewhere, spend the money because there's no other way to grow it. How do you make a decision on whether the dollar that you spend is a good spent dollar? Yeah, um, I say so it always depends on. So if it's something what we buy, like a tool or a solution, something like that, um, I usually ask, does it help the team to be more productive? They say, yes, I don't even think twice, I right. get it. Um, because SaaS tools usually are cheap anyway. Like I'm not thinking if it's another 150 or $200 a month, I don't care if it actually makes their life easier, go for it. Um, if it's spend on marketing or another person doing email um we just looked into our conversion rate um we looked into what is the conversion and what exactly is the return on each dollar spent um with marketing it's quite easy to do easy-ish on development it's a little bit difficult because you can't really put a dollar amount based on whatever they have fixed or built um quite tricky but with marketing you know your conversions you know exactly how much it costs and you know exactly on if we put 10,000 in, how much you're going to get out of it. And you can just make the calculations with that. Okay. And and your study, the, the study you mentioned about entrepreneurs yeah. uh, coming from wealthy or middle class families yeah. or whatever it is, that's an interesting one. Was that yeah. a skill you personally had to learn to deal with bigger numbers or was that something that was innate um, to you? I learned it at Gilbert and Tobin. Mm. Being part of a law firm, I've realized because being part of these very, very big deals, that's when I learned it. And is it? I did not know about it. It, yeah. scared, it would have scared me too. Very much so. Because yeah. I'm from a very small, you know, town in Austria and no one thinks about hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. It's like, what? A yeah. million dollars? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and that's when I learned that, yeah, millions just swap hands like it's nothing. Jeez. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a uh, couple more questions before we wrap up. Yeah. Um, you, you joined the Land and Rogers Law Tech Hub yes. in 2019. How's your experience been throughout that process? Yeah, it's cool. Um, it's really good. Um, we're going through a pilot with them, um, with Nexo. They've been very helpful. Um, they've given us quite a fair bit of feedback on that and access to their lawyers, which is good. And obviously we're at YBF here, yeah. and <laughs> which is great as well. So we love the office. The team really loves the office as well. Great location. Um, so yeah, we're happy. Really glad to hear that. Yeah. Uh, well, what is it like working so close with a customer? as well because often you hear this uh this uh tussle between you know listen to your customer or don't listen to your customer and there's this saying that people i think wrongly attribute to henry ford or something you know if you ask people what they wanted um you know they'd, they'd ask for faster horses yeah. not, not cars that's so true working so <laughs> <laughs> that's true there <laughs> so I mean, working, working so close to the, with a customer like yeah. Leonard and rogers how do you as a as a company decide what to take in and what to yeah. see this is know? this is definitely a really tricky thing um also just with customers in general um We've made a mistake, um, which kind of cost us a lot of engagement within the platform, which was we had out of 300 and whatever people, I think five complained that we sent them too many notifications and stuff. And this is spammy. Please delete my account. And I thought way too much into that. It was like, oh, my God, we're spamming people. We shouldn't. So we created a project around that. And it was like, okay, let's try to less be less spammy, basically. right? And 
by doing that, the project, yes, was successful in one part, which was we did not get any complaints about spam anymore, but we missed so much opportunity for engagement um, because we just turned off emails, which people should actually get <laughs> yeah. and then didn't get anymore, which kind of the engagement kind of dropped a lot, which slowed down the momentum of the entire network quite a fair bit. So it was like, okay, this was stupid. And I should have not thought of, okay, there was just five people out of 300 and something. And negative feedback, you're always going to have some haters anyway, right? And they're going to be vocal about it. The others might not. So I made that realization to be like, okay, listen to it, obviously, but then make your own opinion if it's right or not in a way. And then also our solution was simply to create a much, much better settings around what kind of in, like information they want to receive and leave that decision up to them. And now we've found that just five out of the whatever thousand we have right now have just unsubscribed right. <laughs> from the notifications. So yeah. that was a complete you know, mistake for us to even spend time at the beginning to try to minimize the emails we send because I was just listening on five people who were loud enough to say, hey, this is too spammy, yeah. this is crap. And on Please a percentage basis, that was it's know, nothing. compared to 300 but, customers. Yeah, it's nothing. And But it's just because this is the stuff you hear, right? The good stuff you don't really, they're not coming and just sending you an email. Like, hey, this is so great and how many emails I received. Like, you never hear that. <laughs> yeah. It's just people complaining about yeah, how many yeah, emails yeah. I received. So I was just overthinking it completely. The entire team then was because I pushed it into. And yeah, but that now I've learned to not take or don't focus too much on that negative stuff focus a little bit more on the positive as well mm. if you do get it because if you get it um they're actually going out of their ways to give it to you which is great um and then double down on the stuff that you do really well and the stuff that you're doing not so well yet it's okay <laughs> make it better over time but yeah absolutely don't stress too much about it and uh what does the future look like for yourself and for nexel growth <laughs> expensive growth. expensive growth yeah so that means another raising um, yeah, uh another round for you yeah, yeah. we we'll probably start raising again in the next three to four months okay. yeah amazing yeah thanks for uh being on the podcast Phil. this is well, a so great much. chat um loved it. i love ending this question uh i love ending the podcast with this question which is if someone wanted to get in touch with you or yeah. if someone wanted to be to learn more about your upcoming raise or to be a customer yeah. whatever it is yeah how should they get in touch um email is easy phil at nexel.io and nexel is just n-e-x-l Awesome. Straight Pretty line to, to fill the founder, which is great. Easy. <laughs> Thank you for being on the podcast. It was great. Thanks so much you. for having me. Love right. it. Thanks. Thanks.